The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of ID theft. And Mari's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on on privacy and ID theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, lots of other shows. So to learn more about ID theft, please visit identitytheft.org. There you go. Thank you so much. <laughs> and to so learn more about this show, you can go to KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. All right, Mari. So I know you have a guest that uh, we've had lots of times before. Two wonderful guests that we've had before that are friends of ours as well. That's right. They're buddies, they're colleagues, they're super nice people, good people, and we're real thrilled to have Jay. They're doing good work for us. Oh, they're doing good work for us and for the community and really for the whole country. And I'm going to tell you their background. We have them on every year, but if you miss the show, you can always listen to the other archived interviews every year, and then we have them on again. Let's start out with Linda Foley. Linda Goldman Foley is a dear friend. She is the co-founder and the director of the Identity Theft Resource Center, a nationwide nonprofit identity theft program based in San Diego, beautiful San Diego, California. Established in 1999 in response to the growing need for victim assistance in public empowerment, Due to the epidemic rise in identity theft, today the ITRC, the Identity Theft Resource Center, is nationally respected for all its wonderful expertise and its work. She was a former victim of identity theft herself, just like I was. In fact, we we met just when she was a victim, but she has gone far beyond victimhood to really overcome and be a leader in this area. She is uniquely suited to understanding the complexities of this crime. ITRC supports thousands of victims through its website, its email, telephone correspondence, everything that she does, her trainings. Linda developed and wrote numerous comprehensive publications on the ITRC's website, which is idtheftcenter.org. Those are used by the national office in her office and network of trained volunteers. Linda provides testimony and information for national and state conferences and task force and remains a resource for legislators throughout the nation. Linda has appeared on numerous on numerous major television news shows, several talk shows, and she's widely quoted by major newspapers, radio stations, and magazines, and she blesses us each year coming on for us, too. Besides her work in the community, she forges partnerships with companies to help them do better work in protecting sensitive information, both for their employees and for their customers. She's created a workplace ID theft self-assessment inventory for use by businesses that might not want to get outside consultants to help, you know, evaluate their company. She has so many honors. They're listed over and over. They're on our website and they're on his website. And now let me tell you about Jay, her partner in crime, shall we speak. Jay Foley, her wonderful husband and my good friend, is the co-founder, director of the Identity Theft Resource Center. Again, we said this is that nationwide nonprofit identity theft program in San Diego. And as a spouse of an identity theft victim, he lived this vicariously, unfortunately, and he understands the emotional complexities of the crime as well as the financial and impact. Since 1999, he's assisted thousands of victims via email and telephone, and he is really the criminal justice contact at the ITRC. He's received great support and accolades from members of law enforcement across the country 
who refer victims to him for assistance. And Jay currently sits on numerous law enforcement, governmental, and legislative task force, including JAG, and has testified at legislative hearings in various states and in front of Congress. He's also a popular presenter and trainer. He's got a great sense of humor. He's also appeared on many television shows, quoted in newspapers just like Linda, been on radio shows, been on our show. And his background includes over 20 years in project management and customer service training and sales and database management. He has experience in the U.S. Navy and study for his MCSC and his MCDBA certificates have proven to be invaluable in understanding the computer's role in this crime. He also has received so many awards. I could go on and on. They're wonderful. Thank you so much, Linda and Jay, for coming on board here today. Thank you. Do you remember the first time I testified? You and Beth dragged me to Washington, D.C. Yeah, the three of us had these two rooms that were running around like chickens, right? Yep. That's right. And you did a great job, and we were being the three musketeers, weren't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've done that before, and this is so fun. So every year you do wonderful new things. Both of you are just, I'm so thrilled to be able to say that you're my friends and I'm also thrilled to be on your advisory board. Sometimes you call me for advice even. Absolutely. You are one of my primary advisors on my own case and have been a mentor of the Identity Theft Resource Center since our beginning. And we always commensurate on things so that's good because we always do it for the best interests of all these victims and consumers out there. So Linda, the Identity Theft Resource Center has been doing a study every year called the Aftermath and you've been doing it for several years. Why don't you guys give us an overview of this study and, and what it covers and what you've learned? Well, it's in its fifth year now, and the report allows us to analyze data, draw conclusions, map out trends, and identify areas for further research based on information that's been provided to us by actual victims of identity theft that we have confirmed because they have contacted the ITRC and we have worked with them. So it's not just someone that we have phoned or emailed out of the blue. We know these folks. We know about their cases. Obviously, when we get their survey, it's anonymous, so we can't match, you know, who might that be. But it really helps us to get an overall picture of the type of victim population that at least the ITRC works with. We don't consider this a census population, but rather a population. In some of the cases, you may want to say they're probably harder cases than others, but we certainly get our fair share of someone stolen my credit card, what do I do? Right, right. So what are some of the trends that you found in the, in the most current study? As usual, financial crimes were probably the most commonly reported, about 78% of the respondents. were criminal only, 2% we called governmental issues this time, um, which would be welfare, DMV. um, Employment, employment fraud too. Employment fraud, exactly. And then about 22% were a combination of several types of identity theft. Right. I've been getting more and more of these that are financial and criminal and medical. It's just, it's really unfortunate that now these people, they're getting, they're getting hit all over the place, not just financial. And Jay takes care of those cases because at that point, they really need someone to unravel all, it's like a tangle of, of string, isn't it, Jay? Yes, it is. It's, uh, it's the proverbial ball of string, little pieces here, there, and elsewhere, and you've got to go through and undo each of the knots separately. Yeah. You know, let's talk about why victims are still having such a difficult time clearing their records. Let's share some ideas on that, because i got some stories to tell you, too. Well, Jay, why don't you start with some of your stories, and then I'll go into mine. Well, the biggest reason I believe the victims are still having the complicated problems is, first of all, the the standard or general consumer doesn't know exactly what the rules are. Right. And without the knowledge of the rules, you don't realize how much you're actually in control of the process. I talk to people all the time that say, well, I called up and asked them to do this and this and this. In actuality, you don't have to ask them to do anything. You get to tell them. But if you don't follow the right format in in telling them, you're going to miss a step and something's going to go wrong. Right, right. Yeah, I'll tell you, um, let me give you an example of one that I have right now that's really a horrible case. And I'm learning something that because of the economy and because of the 
incredible increase in identity theft, more and more of it, we're finding that these creditors, and I'm talking about major creditors like Chase, uh, and I'm going to say all the names, Bank of America, Discover, um, you name it, all, all of them. But yeah, what Wamu? Yeah, <laughs> but all of the major carriers—they're—they're—they they don't want to spend a lot of money on fraud, so they're sending out these form letters. Did you notice that too? They're sending these form letters that don't even respond to people who are writing the letters that have the correct information. I have a victim who wrote the letters from my kit that had exactly what he was asking for, like you're talking about Jay, saying, I'm a victim of identity theft, here's my affidavit, here is my police report, here's my driver's license, this is what happened to me, this is a fraudulent account, I never opened this account, etc., etc., sends in the letter, and then he gets a letter back saying, because you have not responded to our phone calls and our correspondence, you will be responsible for this. It's just a form letter. <laughs> Unfortunately, banks and big businesses and various companies that are receiving this, what we have is we have a disconnect. Right. Most of the mail that we receive coming from our bank, coming from our uh, credit card companies, is not generated by a human being. Right. It's generated by a machine. The machine goes through, and it goes step by step by step by step. You very rarely are actually dealing with a human being there. Right. And that's why it becomes very important. When you start receiving pieces of mail like that, you take them, you look at them, you understand, but you go on and proceed through the process appropriately, and you document everything. Exactly. And you send a return receipt requested. Let me tell you, that Absolutely. with some of these banks, yeah. In fact, interestingly enough, with Discover, they said that they had not received a couple of the letters that I had that he had scanned to me. And I said, do you have the return receipt? He scanned the return receipt to me. Mm -hmm. I faxed them and emailed them those, those return receipts from the U.S. Postal Service. And they, they said, oh, Oh, I guess it must be lost in the mail room. How yeah. do you like that? I said, I how, how is it the victim's fault yeah. if it's lost in your mail room? It's not. And we have to go up that chain of command and say, okay, you received it. I want to speak with your legal counsel because I have met all your requirements. Now it's your turn. But what we also have been hearing, especially when we go to CFCIA meetings, which is Financial Crimes Investigators Association, is that the fraud units are being cut back. Ex their budgets and their staffing have been cut back because this is not a revenue, revenue generator for them. Exactly. Yeah, it's not like the marketing department, right? <laughs> well, but Very it true. is the marketing department because when you're dealing as a victim with a fraud investigator, that does give you an, a feeling about who is this company, do I want to continue working with them? Would this be a company I'd want to work with them? And companies need to consider their fraud department should be considered part of their marketing team. Yes, but they're not, Linda, and you know that I know too. That. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how I have had. It felt like I've been a victim again lately, talking on these uh, to these fraud investigators. But you're right; they're they're cut back, and then of course they're really frustrated because they have several hundred cases sitting piled up on their desk, right? And they Absolutely. don't they don't have the time to even deal with you. Yeah. And then and they they're they, frustrated. Yes. They're probably they're starting to go to private industry, they're starting to do volunteer work with groups like ours and other groups that we know of because they can't help the victims the way they want to, so they're going to places where they can actually help victims. Yes. And I don't know if you noticed this, but I've noticed this lately too, which has gotten worse, which is you they you get a, a letter in the mail. And you say, of course, that it's fraud. You write back it's fraud. And then you get back another letter that says provide more information. And there's no address. There's no return address on there. There's only an 800 number and a fax number. And then the fax, like for my clients who work all day, the fax is turned off at night. And there's no return address. So you have to call and try and ask. You know, there's a hurdle just to get a, a, an address to write to. 
And, and you sit on the phone for a half hour on that 800 number trying to talk to someone. Exactly. Like we have all the time in the day to do this, which is why when we looked at the aftermath study, the number of hours someone is still taking to yeah. repair the damage should be considered excessive. Exactly. So so what is the number of hours? I know you started out a few years ago. It was like 600. Then it went to 300. What, what was it in the uh, 2007 aftermath? It's 116 hours for an existing account or takeover. Right. And in the cases where a new account was created, it's 158 hours. Wow. And that's, now I start figuring that in 40-hour weeks, and we're talking about a number of weeks over a month. And then we also have had people who said endless and too many to count. Right. And so you have that was just your average number, right? Because some it was easy and some it was a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. We've had answers that included five years of time even. Right, right. And I know that when you went through it and when I went through it, it wasn't easy then. And you would think it would be easier now because we have laws that we didn't have when you and I were victims years ago. No, but the question is, and I think this is something I've been thinking about, even in terms of information handling, we have laws that say you must destroy documents in certain ways and such, but no one's enforcing the laws. No. Not with the the enthusiasm that they should. Right. Well, a, a lot of the things, there's no private right of action, you know. So, for example, if there's a security breach and someone has, um, you know, lost your information, you can only really, I mean, m- many of the courts have not uh, given the consumer the right to sue them for negligence. They're basically being sued only if they don't disclose. There are some companies, like, you know, WAMU, just like recently there's a big class action against them, and there has been against TJX. But, um, you know, a lot of the cases, you know, the, the, the courts have just thrown this stuff out. So there really isn't the kind of enforcement that you're talking about, Linda. Absolutely. And then we have secondary effects to these victims, victims encounter. It's not just the fact that someone's stolen your social security numbers and opening up new lines of credit or committing a medical identity theft or criminal identity theft. Now we're seeing increases in insurance rate, increases in credit card ins- rates, or that credit cards are being canceled that you've been paying on yes. regularly. Collection agencies, 53% said collection agencies are still calling, even though the account was marked as fraud. Right. So, so the, the banks are trying to get their money any way they can. They'll sell it to a collection agency. Of course, then the, the people like you and I and Jay, we're, we're sitting there, and we find that when we have our credit cards, the finance charges are higher. The amount of time you're given t- to pay is instead of 30 days, now it's 20 or 15 days. 15? Yeah. What card do you have? No, not in mine. <laughs> I, I, I pay mine every month, but I've seen that they are now changing. I've seen to, one more than 10 days yeah. lately. Yeah, they're saying 15 days to pay, otherwise it's late. Yeah, one of my clients has a card like that. And then, and then of course, there, if you've been a victim, there, or if we're talking about victims, they, they find out that they have their, um, their credit line and their good cards are being reduced. They can't even get uh, the kind of credit lines that they need to, to do their own work for their own legitimate accounts. So let's get back to this study, though, because there's some interesting things that you that you learned here about um, you had here use of victim information. Let's talk about that. It says more than one half or 57 percent of the 2000 sample reported their personal information had been used for a new line of credit. A lot of people don't understand how that can happen. Linda, why don't you explain or Jay, why don't you explain how people can apply for a new credit line? Right. Well, what happens is I get your personal information. I get your name, your social security number, and I go out, and I know because I'm a bad guy, I know which companies do really good screenings and which ones don't do such good screenings. So I apply for credit with one of these lesser companies. I get that credit card up and going. I get another credit card up and going with another lesser company. After the third credit card I get up, now your credit report reflects whatever information I put in there more than your information. And from that point, I'm just opening up credit wherever I can until such time as it gets closed off. 
Exactly. I'm going to so, go to town and have a ball. Exactly. And and the statements are going to an alternate address, so you don't even know. You don't have We've a clue. I've seen that instead of opening up 10 or 15 or 20 accounts with the same Social Security number, right. they're going from one, one number to the other. They do five, maybe three, five, six accounts in one Social Security number, then they jump to the next one so that they stay ahead of the game. This criminal population is becoming more sophisticated. And what do you think about these security breaches? We're hearing more and more about security breaches. What about the link between the security breaches and identity theft? There's all sorts of speculation about that. What is your view on it? I'm not sure we can say, and there have been some studies on the larger breaches. It depends on the size of the breach. I think when we're seeing these breaches that are in the 100,000 people plus, it's like stealing the Hope Diamond. You're not going to go off and start pawning it the next day. People are looking for it. People are putting fraud alerts on there. They're lasting for 90 days. Then they fall off. They may be getting credit monitoring services for a year. It's the smaller the breach, the more likely the information seems to be used. Especially quickly. Especially quickly. And if they steal a credit card number, they're going to use it quickly because they know that it has a short shelf life. Exactly. As opposed to a social security number, which they can warehouse, which means putting it into a storage database for a year, year and a half, and then go back and use it because no one's canceling social security numbers. We can't. Right, because that'll only make us look more suspicious when all the databases seem to have our social security number. If we suddenly tried to change it, we would look more suspicious because the old database will just link to the new one. And, then and the government's not going to let us. Right, right. Actually, if you get to the point where you are changing your social security number because there's been sufficient abuse, and on the rare occasions that the government lets you, you have to sever your old identity from your new one. Otherwise, you're going to create a pathway for the thief to get into the new identity and actually take you to town. Right. And if you thought it was difficult explaining to all those creditors the uh, that wasn't you, Right. Imagine what happens when the thief starts using your new social security number. Right. Just follows you around. We're speaking with Linda and Jay Foley, who are the co-founders and co-directors of the Identity Theft Resource Center, which is in San Diego, gorgeous San Diego, California. You can learn more about what they do, the fabulous work they do. Look at their their help sheets, their fact sheets, the trainings that they offer at idtheftcenter.org. And we're talking about their most recent study, the Aftermath 2007. Let's talk then about the moment of discovery. What did you see about um, victims finding out? What did you learn about victims finding out about that, that, what, that they have become victims of identity theft? A lot of that is the same information that we saw before. Um, unfortunately, people are finding out in a negative way rather than a proactive way. It's collection agencies, it's creditors, it's refusal to be able to get credit, tenancy, a loan. Um, that's when the moment of discovery is. It is sooner. And one of the analysts who looked at it said it's because creditors, times are tough, the economy is down, and creditors are no longer waiting five or six months for a bill to be paid. By the time it reaches two or three months, they're turning it over to collection. Yes. So we're finding out about identity theft sooner. However, it's still in a negative way. Very few people find out by a proactive way, which would be a company calling and saying, we're noticing that an account is being opened in your name or that an address change has been filed. Was that you? Right. And that is the goal. Right, right. You know, um, in November, November 1st, 2008, the red flag rules of the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act come into effect, and those there's 26 uh, red flags, so to speak, that are supposed to indicate that there's a possibility of fraud, such as when somebody calls up and says, um, I want another card at a different address, or they um, apply for credit at an address that's different from the credit report. Those are red flags. And all financial institutions are supposed to be compliant with this law by November 1st, 2008. So I'm hoping that your uh, 2008 study next year will show that these companies are being a little bit more proactive in protecting us. But I think we won't see that till 2009 because our 2008 will reflect people we're talking to right, right. now. Exactly. And the red flags have not 
actually become, you know, regulations yet. Right. Well, they were as yet. Until we see the difference. I'm I'm hoping soon. Yeah, they became effective January 1st, but they're not. They don't have to be totally compliant till November 8th. So we'll see. Correct. You're you're probably right. We won't see it till next year, and I hope we do see it. How about the cost to victim victims? What did, what did you find out about the cost to victims in 2007? $550 approximately were spent in out-of-pocket expenses for damage done when someone had an existing account used. Okay. Um, that would include postage, photocopying, purchasing police reports, travel, buying court records, child care, lost time. When we're talking about new accounts and we're talking finance right now, financial, it was an average of about $1,865, and that's up by about $500 compared to 2006. Right, and I think you're going to find that that's going to be higher for people because they're going to be spending more time and more energy because they're getting more fights from banks who are not who are relentless in trying to collect because they're not going to be able to collect from the fraudster, yeah. and they're going to try and wear down these victims. That's what I'm seeing. They're trying to wear down the victims to where they just pay it or just say, I, you know, I give up. You know? Yeah, and we have to remember, identity theft isn't just about money. Jay, you've seen much longer periods of time in trying to repair the damage when you're dealing with criminal cases, don't you? That's very true. The uh, In dealing with a criminal case, you're now talking about going through the court system and going through the law enforcement agencies where the activities took place. And in most cases, they're not really prepared for dealing with this you're not the one we looked at type environment. Right. So, Jay, how, what what are you seeing differently? I know you work with a lot of law enforcement agencies. How are you seeing the law enforcement community in terms of what they're doing with victims? You know, it was very hard for victims to get uh, police reports previously. What are you seeing? What kind of changes are you seeing? Actually, I'm seeing that in change in a more positive light. Law enforcement overall is actually finding out and discovering the victim doesn't necessarily want you to go out and find the bad guy. They just need you to take the report so that they can invoke their federal rights. And more and more law enforcement officers across the country are discovering that that's the case. And with that basis, they're willing to work with the individuals. Yes, yes. How about when it's criminal identity theft? What do you find when victims contact you and they are they find out that there's maybe warrants in another state or there is a criminal conviction in their name? What about that? Where we're finding that to be interesting is we find victims are in a really awkward spot. If there's a warrant actively for your arrest, you don't necessarily want to walk into the local law enforcement office and say, hi, guys, I need your help. <laughs> he throw you away <laughs> and lock the door, right? <laughs> you're likely to find yourself on vacation for a unspecified period of time. And I personally don't like bologna sandwiches all that much. No, no. Uh-uh. So you have to approach it very carefully. Nine times out of ten, what we have to do is we have to approach the agency that generated the warrant. Find out from them, do you have fingerprints? Do you have this? Do you have that? Right. Do you have we, a mugshot even? Yeah. Yes. You have to go ahead and put together an idea of what the case is that they have and what information that you can provide and how you can provide it in such a way as it doesn't involve you running down there and throwing yourself on the mercy of the local police officer. Right. I worked a case out of Arizona not long ago where during the time of the crime spree, and it was 23 felony arrests in, the, in Cook County, Illinois, mm. the individual was actually serving in the United States Navy in Italy. Oh, dear. He was an information systems tech there, didn't know any of this was going on, got out of the Navy, came back to Arizona, trying to get a job. None of the employers would touch him. Oh. There were actually several warrants for him in Cook County, and what actually aided us in this is we contacted Chicago PD and said, look, this guy was in the Navy. This is where he was at. We have all the documentation that that is what he was doing, including his military ID cards. What do we have to provide you to do a comparison? Right. 
and they came back with, well, we'll accept prints and a, and a photo from a law enforcement agency. So we contacted the sheriff's department where he lives. We explained the situation. This guy, he needs his prints taken. He needs a photo taken. He needs it sent by law enforcement to Chicago for them to compare with what they have on file. And one of the deputies agreed to do this. They brought him in, treated him well, didn't arrest him. They found out where he lives just in case he turns out to be the one that they're looking for. Right. They let him go back to his home. Three hours after the information hit Chicago, Chicago's case investigators in their records department calls up and says, he's not our guy. Uh-huh. And they started comparing notes and they discovered that the person who stole his identity grew up in the same town in Wisconsin with him. Oh, dear. When he went in the military, the bad guy went on the rampage. Uh-huh. They actually pulled the fingerprints from his previous cases that they thought it was my victim. Yes. And they found out that the person who had been impersonating him had a 40 record conviction or 40, 40 different arrests under his own identity. The 23 that they had under the assumed identity put him into a very high category. If we ever catch him, he's going away to prison forever type Oh, my gosh. Environment. You know, Mari, that sort of fits into how do people get information. And with five years of history to study now, it's becoming very clear that according to respondents, about one-third of the cases were started by someone known to the victim. And that's really a sad state of affairs. Right, like an old roommate or somebody who lives on your block or someone who knows who you are or an old employer like you had. you know, A some, parent. Yeah, a parent. Those are sad too, right. Jay, let me ask you, let's go back to this poor guy who came out of the military. Um, what, what happened then? Once, once they knew that, how about all of the databases and the NCIC, the, the FBI database? You know, how did you go about, were you able to clean that all up? Because that's a real tough thing to do, too. What it took was it took us communicating with Chicago PD, 14 different precincts, and getting the records division to reintegrate the records with the correct identity, the used alias, get that pushed all the way up through the courts. So they put in the real name of the real guy and then put your guy as the alias? Our guy was the, was the alias. One of the things that they actually did was they took his prints as submitted by Arizona Sheriff's Department right, and put it in. This is the victim of a cr- separate crime, identity theft. Boom. Here's the imp- here is the victim. Here is the imposter. And they forwarded that all the way through. We are still working with Chicago PD trying to get that data loaded in NCIC. Right. The problem is NCIC does not have the capability of select of intaking the victim's information. It's what if they the, get it from, from law enforcement, right? They get it from law enforcement. The problem is all the prints that they have and, and all the the identities that NCIC is really storing, Yes. these are perpetrators that are wanted for one crime or another or have been caught and convicted of one crime or another. They don't have the capability of putting in a file saying, this is the victim of this crime over here. This is why you need to be aware of this in case you run across him. It's something that we're actually working with the Department of Justice and the federal government trying to develop a national registry for victims of criminal identity theft. Exactly. That's what we have in California that we finally got passed. Let me ask you something else. So, so when you do a background check now on your victim, okay, when you pull a background check, do all the records reflect that, that the bad guy is the bad guy and it shows that your guy is... Is innocent? Does it? When you do a background check, does it, does he still come up as uh, wanted for all these felonies or or convicted of all these felonies? He still comes up from time to time, depending on who's doing the check. That's one of the other problems. Is is it a current check being done of Chicago PD and Chicago records, or is this a data file that has been collected? A, a data broker, yeah a data aggregator putting it together and keeping it 
the data aggregators are slowly but surely getting their records cleared and cleaned up. Yes. It is taking us a lot less time to get them to to move around to the cleaner records than I actually expected, which I'm I have to admit is great. Yes. It's also very surprising. But let me tell you something, because the background checkers are subject to the Fair Credit Reporting Act in terms of their duty to have accurate records, that just for your own edification legally, you should do another background check. And any background checks that come up that you perform that are showing the inaccurate data, it has to tell you the source. And if the source is let's say, a court or something, you can get that fixed. You have to go back to the court. If it's a source from something that was already cleaned up, that guy has a very good case or law case against them for not having accurate information and updating their files. Well, for my young gentleman in the military, he's actually very fortunate because his current employer has has an agreement to employing him. Yes. Because they really like his skill set. Yeah. They are doing a background check on him every six months, and anytime something pops up before they take any kind of action, they bring it to his attention and allow him and I to try to address this and correct this. Good. But that sure reminds you of Scott's case from how yeah. many years ago, Mari? Yeah, well, not only Scott, right? Ray also, uh, I, I've had several of these cases where someone had a criminal background that really was not their own, and... I went through hell and high water, and, the, and the, the worst one was Ray Lorenzo because I had to go to the NCIC. I had to go to the county of Suffolk in New York. I had to go and deal with the, um, the New York State Department of uh, Criminal Justice. I mean, it was crazy. We finally got everything cleaned up, but that's why I was waiting. I was almost hoping that I was going to do another uh background checked and find something because we would have had a great lawsuit so you know you might want to have them do another one again within three months jay and let me know about it maybe we could uh, get this guy some money for all of his aggravation because those data brokers really don't realize it but something like that they're going to be subject to uh legal exposure for not updating their files but it's pretty horrible because anything that that gets out there you know these databases are shared and sold and copied and it's it's a mess for all of us. What you have to realize is in the realm of data ad- aggregators and yeah. data brokers, right? data in this sense is just like a growing, living thing. Yep. And bad data is just almost like a cancer cell. Yes. <laughs> That's a really good analogy, Jay. It is. It just multiplies, doesn't it? It does, and it eats away at you, and it has the potential for destroying your existence. It does. You know, you even had something here in your study about inability to clear negative records. And um, let's talk about that, Linda, about the credit agencies. Ah. Yeah, the credit, I'm looking at it, just you can comment it. I'm, I'm reading what you gave me here. The credit agencies, either by putting negative information back in records, okay, that's, you know, reinserting, or not removing them in the first place. 32%, you said. Top the list for reasons of victims' inability to to clear their records. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And, you know, we keep trying to work with the credit reporting agencies, and I can't say that it's 100% their fault. You know, if a someone, 10 people are using your identity and they're getting a new line of credit and the information is being put on there legitimately again by a thief because they've just opened up a new line of credit, there's got to be a red flag system so that it says, hold on, that information should not be put on there. Um, a, someone we both know who we've testified with, Nicole, right. from out of the D.C. area, has been going through this now for since 2000, oh, yeah. where they keep adding information on and on and on. She's got 10 people using her identity, and it almost gets to the point where you have to decide, do you want to freeze your yeah, credit report, she, yes. or do you want to change your Social Security number? Well, it seems to me that something like that, that is credit identity theft, she should do a security freeze. And why don't you explain to our audience what a security freeze is and how it's different from a fraud alert, because I think a lot of people don't know the yeah. difference. By law, you are allowed 
these items as part of your rights. You don't have to pay for them, by the way, as far as if you are a victim of identity theft. A fraud alert is a consumer statement that says, please contact me before issuing credit. It's free for the first 90 days, and it is renewable every 90 days. And it's free even every 90 days if you're a victim, and you can get a seven-year fraud alert if you write the letter and provide documentation of the fraud and all that. That's correct. The next step that you can take is to put a freeze on your credit report, and it is a much more burdensome step, and I have a freeze, so I can speak out of personal experience. It's basically putting it in a safety deposit box to which I don't have. I have a PIN number, which is part of the key, but I also have to wait for one of the credit reporting agencies to go with the other key and unlock that, which means that if I wanted to get a credit card today, I can't. I have to wait three days. Now, as a victim, your freeze is free, and it varies from state to state to state in California. If you're not a victim of identity theft, you can also get a freeze. It's $10 per credit reporting agency. You can remove it. It takes up to three days in California. Um, And you can remove it by saying you can let such and such company look at it. You can remove it to let auto dealers look at it or mortgage brokers or for a specific amount of time. So you have some choices in there. Right. And you you have to write to them. Yeah, because you have to write to them. Right. You but if you but someone them. like Nicole who's just it's relentless, right? That's a perfect if you cannot stop the fraud. That's a you know, and you're not in the mood or in the need for other credit. Then it's probably a good idea to do it if you're right in the middle of the craziness, right? It gives it buys me peace of mind, and even if I had had to pay for it, um, when we look at the emotional impact of identity theft, part of that is you do lose that peace of mind of waiting for not the other shoe to drop, but when is the next shoe going to drop? And as, Mari, you are well aware, just because you become a victim of identity theft once doesn't mean you can't become a a victim due to an entirely unrelated situation. This isn't the measles. You're not immune because you've been a victim (laughs) once. Exactly. So Um, for those people who have a stable life, they have the credit cards they need. They don't make um, decisions in the morning and want to buy that red Ferrari in the afternoon. A freeze may be the way to go. It's great for seniors, and Jay and I have talked about this at length, especially those who are sliding a little bit into dementia as adult children caregivers, so to speak, or children of elderly adults. This is a way of protecting my parents from scam artists and from perhaps spending more money than they can afford to spend at this time because they don't understand that pre-approved credit card offer is not a bill. Right. It's an offer. Exactly. Jay, you were going to say something? I was going to ask you, Maury, how many times have you been victimized? Well, luckily, you know, my, my, my big victimization was, you know, when the woman assumed my identity and not only was parading as an attorney and getting credit cards and credit lines in my name and you know, totaled a car, and of course I was being sued by a thrifty rental car. Besides that, um, I've had on my credit cards, I've had fraud. I can tell you that American Express um, has been wonderful. I never have a problem. If there is fraud, I just take it take it over. And in fact, I think we should talk about that, the difference between a credit card and a, and a debit card, because I would never, ever have a debit card. I'd have an ATM card that I could take money out, but not a debit card. But my credit card, if there's fraud in my credit card and I look at my statement, I'm never going to be held responsible for it. But I know you guys hate debit cards, too. Let's talk about the dangers of debit cards because they've really been pushing debit cards. Have you seen that? We're getting that all the time. Oh, convert to a debit card. Convert to a debit card. We're getting that all the time. Dave's going to answer that question because I turned red. Yes, I know. I'm about to explode. <laughs> Go ahead, Jay. The problem that most people run into is they see the little Visa or MasterCard logo on it and think, oh, gosh, it's a secure thing. Yep. It is not. The laws that apply to debit cards are not the same as those that apply to credit cards. Right. One of the simple facts of the matter is with a debit card, I don't necessarily need your PIN number to use it. Yeah, you can go online or by phone. I can use a... I can use the credit transaction function, and it will still run the charge through. 
the differences, and the way I make it very simple for all those people that I'm talking to, is which would you rather do, argue an erroneous charge with a credit card company or fight with your bank to get the money put back into your account? Exactly. Now, a lot of the banks have been advertising for a long time now. If your debit card is abused or stolen or whatever, we will make you whole. Yes, they will. However, we've also seen them do the following. After they do that, they go ahead and they conduct their investigation. And they come back to this teeny tiny little clause that you didn't see in your agreement with them about protecting your debit card. Right. And because you failed to protect it, somebody was able to clone it, somebody was able to copy it, or somebody stole it, you're responsible for the loss. My and biggest, they take the money away. Exactly. The problem is the money is gone instantaneously. Exactly. And if it's on the 30th of the month, I can't pay my rent on the 1st. Or, or if you've written checks or, you, you know, you've had automatic payments and somebody has already siphoned the money out of your account, it's gone. And then you've got all these things bouncing all over the place. And, it, you know, the, the, the Electronic Funds Transfer Act, which is really the federal law that, that governs the debit card, um, does not apply unless you're using your PIN. So you have to rely on state law. And most of the state laws and most of the time people see in their little um, agreements with their banks, it says you have to tell us within two days. If you yeah. don't tell us within two days, then you're going to owe at least 500 And if you don't tell us within you know, 60 days, you're never going to get any of your money back. And it's so confusing to even read those statements. And I have dealt with, you know, my clients on these issues, and they don't even understand what these, what these things are. I mean, it's very hard to even read those statements. And they thought that they were covered. They had no idea. And if you don't do online banking, and you don't even see these electronic transfers until at least your statement comes. And then there's a couple of other problems as well, and I'll let Jay go into a little more detail because it's his area. But people, again, if a company will say, well, someone used your PIN number, it could have been a shoulder surfer, someone looking over your shoulder that got it, or there was a little skimming device in the scanner that you used at the supermarket or at the Arco station. Um, We also have unsecured networks where the information has been logged in or has been used and they have the pin number and the com- banks as well they had your pin number so obviously they have your permission exactly they, they, you like go into that well you're talking about those security breaches right right JD? yes we are those those breaches were basically what's happened is you the company has a wireless network yeah they have minimal security if none at all on it the bad guys come along with a laptop computer without even entering the building, they get into the network and they plant sniffer programs that track down your credit transaction or your debit card transaction. They copy the information out from the transaction and away they go. Yep. And then you have the fake fronts on the ATM machines as well as the scanner machines that are in stores. Right, or or they have this thing that, you know, it grabs your ATM card and then somebody behind you says, oh, it's stuck? Well, let me help you get it out. And then meanwhile, they they um, they said, well, gee, I guess you can't get it out. You better make a phone call right away. And meanwhile, they they have actually put this thing like a like a little clip in, inside that holds your card. And they've seen you try to do the pin, you know, the password a couple times. <laughs> and then you leave. They take your money out. And then, you know, they think that you're being nice and quick, go, go call the police or go call the bank or something. And then they, they take all your money out. They don't even have to see you do it. Right. They're installing little tiny nanny cams yep. into little tiny boxes where they might have materials and such and watching you put the PIN number in. So there is no 100% way to protect that, even if you hold your arms around it like you did when you took the tests in school. Right. Terrible. There is a chance they can see it. You know, I wanted to tell you about this thing with inability to clear records. This is this just happened today. I mean, I was actually furious when I saw this. I worked with a victim um, who was a victim of identity theft with Discover, and he saw on his credit report that there was seven thousand two hundred dollars uh, on Discover, which 
apparently what happened was he had opened that account in 85. Somebody that moved into his house uh, was able to call up and reopen that account after he moved. Okay. So anyway, long story short, we prove it's fraud and they, they write a letter and they say, okay, this account is fraudulent. So I have him send that letter to the credit reporting agencies. What does he do? He gets his credit report today. This is what happened. They took that account and said it was closed due to fraud and opened up a new account with that $7,200 on it and put it on his credit report. This is actually the second time they've done that. <laughs> have you seen that? We have seen that. Uh, that is a very, very bad little, Trick. little stunt that they pull. Yes, yes. It's similar to the one where collection agencies will try to collect on a debt, and they're reaching the seven-year statute of limitations on that debt right. from the original company. And what they will do is they'll sell it to a, to a new collection agency who will try to refile it on the credit report for another seven years. Right, right. Exactly. And, and I mean, these are really, yeah, these are, these are violations of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. They definitely are. So then, you know, you have to get an attorney who's willing to file a lawsuit against these companies for the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and there has to be enough damages to your credit, meaning you couldn't get a house, you couldn't get a car, you couldn't get an apartment, you couldn't get a job. You have to have enough damages for them to even take the case. So a lot of the times, they're, mm -hmm. you know, people won't file a lawsuit for this, so they get away with it. And you also have to find, and I'm going to use this as a plug for you, Mari, I'm sorry, <laughs> you have to find an attorney who knows what they're doing. Yes. We have seen far too many victims say, oh, I got an attorney and they didn't do anything. In fact, they made my case worse. It is critically important that they find someone who has expertise in the field and is not going to use them to learn about identity theft and collection agencies via your case. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, they can, they can get some help at myfaircredit.com. Dot com. Um, that is actually a, a whole group of attorneys who have a lot of free information about these cases. They may not understand it, but at least they can see at MyFairCredit.com. And also, of course, they should be going to IDTheftCenter.com and IdentityTheft.org and PrivacyRights.org and FTC.gov slash ID theft, all those good things, and definitely start out with the Identity Theft Resource Center. But let's get back. We're talking with Linda Foley and Jay Foley, who are partners in preventing crime and taking care of crime of identity theft, and they're wonderful people. They are the co-founders and co-directors. Linda, let's talk a little bit about child identity theft. I know this is one of your areas of expertise. You've really done a lot, and we're seeing so much of it. What did you find in the study? It's important. To, we have found that a large percentage of the respondents seem to have been victimized by those who had easy access to their information, Yes. which first and foremost were parents, unfortunately. And we have to remember, back when I was young, we got our social security numbers when we first started working. Exactly. We're like 16. away my age. <laughs> Me too. I was 16 when I got my social security number. Right. Now social security numbers, due to a request by the IRS, are given out before the first time that tax return is filed where that child will be declared as a deduction. Right. And that's to help make sure that child's not being declared by, certain, by multiple people. But that gives us an 18-year window. And there are people who are going to take advantage of that. And the first person who has easy access to that information is a parent. Those people who have used their Social Security numbers, who cannot get credit any longer in their Social Security numbers, say, oh, well, I'll just borrow my kid's Social Security number and I'll pay up all the bills. Right. Well, if they didn't pay the bills in their own name, they're not going to pay the bills in the kids' names. I'm right, sorry. Right, right. It doesn't work that way. I've never seen a victim, a, mm, yes. a perpetrator. And I have talked with some of these perpetrators. Yes. Personally, and they're just, they're regretful, they're sorry, but what do I do now? The kids are 18, they can't get a college loan. And I said, why didn't you think of that 10 years ago when you stole their identity? Exactly, exactly. Um, there are relatives who are grandparents, siblings, and such. Besides the problem of the fact that these, I think, are vastly underreported, a lot of them find out when they're 18, 19 years old, and they first are starting to apply for credit, so... 
that 5% we see from the Federal Trade Commission may be an understatement right. of how many cases there truly are. And we're seeing, based on studies done in Arizona and Utah and a couple of other things that I've been reading lately, that that number is quite a bit higher. I've had the uncomfortable experience of saying to an 18-year-old, um, well, what are all the addresses on your credit report that isn't in your name but is in your Social Security number that we finally were able to able to get? And they said, well, one of them is my home address. The other one belongs to my auntie. And I oh. said, I hate to tell you, but there's a family member involved here. And they just break down sobbing. Yes. And that's sort of the end of that phone call until they calm down. And then a few days later, we talk and say, okay, how do you want to do with it? And kids and parents because children will steal the identities of parents. Yes. Um, so they go, well, what a bad parent must I be if I report my child to the police? Or what a bad child must I be if I report my parent to the police? Because any parent is better than no parent. It's heart-wrenching. It's absolute. I have a guy now who's, whose stepdad who adopted him has done this to him to the tune of $75,000. It is so tragic. In our corporate overview, which is on our website, there's a story about Randy, who was basically abandoned by his father, raised by a single mother, until his mid-teens and his father re-entered his life and befriended him. They did everything together, and then he sort of disappeared from his life when Randy reached 18, 19 years old, and he started to apply to pilot school to become a commercial pilot. Oh, no. And when they did a background check on him, they found out that his father, who's Jamaican, had been stealing his identity since he was an infant Goodness. for criminal and financial purposes. And his dream of being a commercial pilot went down in flames. Oh, my goodness. We were lucky. We got the Montel Williams show involved in it. We got the publicity we needed on it. Montel Williams, and we worked with it. The Florida Attorney General's Office worked with it. We got the records clean, and Montel was able to get him a scholarship to a commercial pilot school. Mm. But those stories are rare. Yes, yes. Now, we only have a few minutes left, and I know you, you recently have, you've done so much good work with your, uh, you know, documenting the security breaches. And, um, Jay, do you want to just talk about that for a few minutes? I, I, we really need two hours at least, but we don't have it. But do you want to talk a little, little bit about what you've uh, found with the security breaches? Well, the breaches have just, interestingly enough, as of the last couple of days, or last couple of weeks, have exceeded last year's number. Last year we had a total of 446 for the year. Yes. Here we are in the beginning of September, and we've already passed that number for this year. Wow. Now, the breach has become kind of unique because you've got a lot of breaches that are listed there that they won't even tell us how many records were exposed. Right. They say unknown, right? (laughs) Unknown. So the record count is not really the important factor. The fact that they had personal identifying information on customers, employees, and clients, and basically they lost control of it. This is what becomes important. And so what are we doing? Do you think that there's going to be a federal bill passed to, to deal with security breaches? That all depends on who wins the next election. Yep. We're going to have to work on that. And Lloyd is telling me, is it time, Lloyd? Okay, we got. We only got two minutes left. Let me add one quick thing here on the breaches. I think it's important that we're saying we're not putting fingers at certain companies, but we want to study the trends. And I think one of the things that's helped us is the inclusion of different AGs and state databases that talk about the breach notification letters they're receiving. If we could see more of those, we could study the trends more and see what are malicious attacks, What is due to poor information handling? We have a problem with subcontractors who may have information of 20 different companies. Right. And we have, you know, I I did a program with a DA in Orange County, and from his perspective, and he was also on our show, from his perspective, 60 to 70 percent of identity theft, from his perspective, comes from dirty insiders or unscrupulous employees. Well, in the last year, it was 15.6%, and the yeah. highest was in the business category. Right, and he, that, that's what he's saying. Hacking was about 13%. Right. So it's, uh, you know, it's really hard to tell because we don't get all of the information reported to us. And Lloyd is saying it's time to go. 
You guys are so wonderful. We're, we're going to have to have you back again, as usual, for your annual. You are terrific. We thank you so much for joining us, Linda and Jay Foley from the Identity Theft Resource Center. You're terrific. Thank you, and so are you, and thank you for everything you do for the public as well, Mari. All right, we're going to tell people to go to idtheftcenter.org. Good night. Good night. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. here on Privacy Piracy and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy where you can download podcasts, Listen to our archived interviews, see our upcoming guests, write us emails, and see all the good things that we've got there to offer you. Thank you. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.